as soon as I saw the internet, and this is even like even pre-internet, there were the, these things called bulletin boards, and the idea that I could write something and publish it, and more than just my family would read it, just blew my mind. Hi, welcome to Volition. Volition is a series of interviews with people operating at the intersection of art, entrepreneurship, and intellectual production. In this episode, I was lucky enough to speak with Justin Jackson. Justin is one of the co-founders of Transistor, which is the software for distributing uh, this podcast, as well as many other podcasts like it. Uh, Justin has walked an incredibly unique path with his career. And it was great to hear a little bit more about his background and what drove him on that journey. I think it's an amazing conversation and I'm really excited to share it with you. Uh, here's Justin. So yeah, you wrote this blog post called It Might Never Go Away. Uh, mm. Essentially, if I, I think I have the idea right, it's you know you send these email newsletters, you record these podcasts and copies of it are then put oh, onto yeah. all these different machines. And so there's this sense in which uh, a version of this might actually stick around indefinitely in people in different people's yeah. computers and live on on the internet. With that yes. idea in mind, does, does thinking about that kind of permanence for the content you create, does it change your mindset at all when you go into an interview like this uh, to think about what it is you're going to say or how you talk about particular th topics? I mean, now it does. Now I just have a considerable amount of anxiety about what I might say. <laughs> um, you know, when I wrote that, I was exploring this idea. So I just love contemplating, exploring, thinking about ideas. So an idea enters my brain and I feel like I need to capture especially right when I have the thought, I need to capture the, it's almost like when you first, a thought first ignites in your mind. It's, it's very potent. It's like connecting to a bunch of things, like a bunch of things just connect all at once. And so I like to like capture that feeling and all of those connections that the idea kind of brought up in me. And one day I was just thinking about, you know, you tweet, but there's like a central version of that that you can delete or now you can edit. You write a blog post, but I often go back and will edit my blog posts for clarity or sometimes I'll have said something that I wish I hadn't and I revise it. It's one of the beautiful things about the internet is you know, if I was writing for a newspaper in the 1800s, once I had written my piece and it had been published, that was out there. I couldn't, there's no, there's no uh, editing after the fact. But with some of these mediums, and they happen to be mediums I really like, email, podcasting, even RSS to a certain extent, people are downloading a copy of what you send out to their machine. So if my email list has like, I think it's down to about 7,500 or something, 
when I send an email, I'm sending 7,500 copies of that content out, which is now archived in a bunch of people's Gmail accounts. And it's possible that what I write will live on for a long time, even if I change my mind or if I realize that I was wrong or what have you. And so, yeah, it was just this sobering thought of what we say. Now, of course, even on central platforms like Twitter and your blog and YouTube, even if you take it down, it's possible that somebody has already captured it and stored it somewhere. But the chances are just so much lower. <laughs> the, the more photocopies you create, you know, the, the, the more trouble you can get into. When I was a kid, I was an early kid on the internet before really any of my friends had modems and even before the web existed, there's Usenet groups. And there's one called ELT2600, which was the Usenet group for this hacker anarchist magazine. And they published all sorts of interesting things like how to pick locks, how to get free phone calls, how to make pipe bombs, all this stuff. And as a kid, I was telling my friends about this and they just had no idea about this. And they asked me to prove it. And so I went home that night and I printed off on my dot matrix printer a copy of some pipe bomb plans. And then the next day I brought them to school. No, I went to my friend's house and showed him. He asked if he could keep them for a while to look at them. I said, fine. I went home. The next day I was sick and I stayed home from school. And my friend Amanda called me at like three o'clock and said, do you have any idea what's happened? And I said, no. And she said, well, your friend Greg brought those bomb plans to school. He showed them to Joey Shelovis. Joey Shelovis went into the teacher's lounge and photocopied them. And now there are four or 500 copies floating around the school. And yeah, so I, you know, it just shows you like things can get out of hand, right? Uh, and, you know, that people got in trouble for that. So, uh, yeah, I, I think uh, I do think about it. <laughs> and uh, but it's still difficult because when we're exploring ideas, we're just it's it's just entirely possible we're going to make mistakes in our conception of things, in our figuring out of things. And so there's a balance there where on one hand, you have to take the risk and you have to publish the idea so that people can interact with it. But on the other hand, it's dangerous because you could do or say something that could hurt people or um, could hurt you or, you know, there's just all sorts of things that can happen. So <laughs> I do think about it, uh, although I haven't thought about that exact <laughs> blog post or idea in some time. Did you get in trouble for the uh, being the originator I, I, of the pipe bomb? I, I didn't. I didn't. They, they, my friends never ratted me out, but, but it was a sobering lesson <laughs> at the same time because <laughs> I was so scared I was going to get uh, in trouble. Um, and I mean, now, of course, uh, kids have access to all that stuff and more on their phones, uh, just a Google search away. But at the time, it was novel. And um, yeah, I... <laughs> 
I just, I just remember the fear. I packed a bag if I remember correctly. Cause I was, I was thinking, cause the, the police did come to the school and started questioning my friends. And, uh, I, I thought for sure they were coming to get me. Oh, wow. I, um, <laughs> I, I empathize with that so much. When I was a young kid, I would do something wrong and then I would have this crazy spiral of, oh, wow, this is it. I'm going to jail. This is, this, this is the end. Oh, that was terrible. Oh. Yeah. So, okay, so um, you, you live in Vernon, BC, right? Yes. That is, that is a really interesting place uh, to, mm -hmm. and I think you're the only person I know who lives in Vernon. Um, yeah. How did you how did you end up there? So I grew up in Stony Plain, Alberta, which is it used to be a little farming town uh, just outside of Edmonton. And then as the oil industry in Alberta picked up, it just became kind of an oil and gas town. So a lot of people uh, were working in oil and gas. And I was working downtown Edmonton and I just. Uh, uh, my family and I and I were not enjoying it. I was commuting an hour into work every day and an hour home. Um, I just also had this feeling, uh, well, and I, there's things we wanted to do. Like I really like snowboarding, but there's no mountains around Edmonton. Uh, the closest places, the Rockies are in about four hours away. And it just felt like we needed a change. And there was kind of this list of things that we wanted that we thought would make our lives better. And we'd explored these ideas over quite some time. One was if we were within driving distance of the mountains, that would be amazing. If I could work remotely, that would be amazing. If I could walk or bike to work, that would be amazing. If we lived somewhere that was warmer <laughs> than Edmonton, Stony Plain, that would be amazing. Uh, if we were, if we lived somewhere where you know maybe there was a community of people that fit us a little bit better, that would be amazing. Uh, and so we just had all these criteria, and we considered a bunch of places. Well, first I had to get a remote job, and that took some time. I eventually convinced my boss to give to let me work remotely back in end of 2011. And so then we started our search and, you know, there's some place, we looked at Montreal, we looked at uh, the island, uh, Vancouver Island. We looked at, you know, a variety of places because we had all sorts of criteria. You can't get everything you want in one place. Like I love Montreal for its like excitement and nightlife and people and just the energy of a big city, but you can't be close, really close to snowboarding and skiing there. And, um, and then there's other disadvantages too. So we just had this whole criteria and yeah, just eventually settled on here. We, we liked it over like Kelowna is kind of the bigger, more popular town around here. And I just liked that Vernon was kind of raw. It was like still not, you know, as polished as mm. other places in the Okanagan. And it just felt like it had a lot of potential. And we knew some people that lived here. And Silver Star, I think Silver Star Mountain is the closest in Canada. It's one of the... the 
Vernon's one of the only places where you can live in a fair-sized city that's pretty close to an airport. Um, that's not exactly a resort city, but still be 25 minutes to the chairlift. And so that kind of drew us here. And um, I don't know if we'll stay here forever, but it, it it would be hard to give up some of the things we have here, even as much as I would love to be in a bigger city. Uh, there's just some things that are amazing here. Uh, and the, the summers are amazing as well. It's just, it gets sometimes too hot, but the weather's really nice as long as there's no uh, wildfires and smoke. Um, but the weather gets really nice and we have these gorgeous lakes. And I think Vernon in particular has the most beautiful lake in Canada, which is called Kalamelka Lake. And in the summer, like this past summer, my my partner and I, my wife, we were just on the lake three or four times a week, you know, just going out paddle boarding. And uh, so the, the proximity to all of this great stuff is kind of the big deal. And it's, it's small enough that you can live in town and still walk downtown and all that stuff. So yeah, that's how we ended up here. So you were saying uh, just before we kicked off that uh, you have a tech newsletter for your town. I, I assume that's for Vernon. So mm-hmm. you've obviously become integrated into the community in some ways. How, like, how did that get started? And maybe if you can talk about the newsletter and how that's gone and kind of what's the distribution like. Sure. Yeah. So when I moved here, my biggest fear was at least when I was living around Edmonton, Edmonton is a city of over a million people. It had a fair tech community, uh, Bioware, the gaming company is headquartered there. Uh, the It's the capital of the province. So there's all this government work. And so when I was working downtown Edmonton, there was a real energy around the tech community there. And I was that was my biggest worry is we're moving to this little town and it's not really close to any big cities except for Kelowna. And I just thought, you know, I'm going to miss out on this local tech community. That was my fear. And so I started you know, trying to fish around and see what was going on in Vernon and eventually got connected with a gal named Kaja who was go- going to be starting a Geek Beers meetup. And so I uh, met with her and we decided we were going to organize it together. So we started doing these er- last Thursday of every month, five to eight beers. And it's for people who are ostensibly in tech, but it could be, it's quite a wide net. You know, some of us are working for big companies like Spotify and Automatic and Yahoo. And some of us are running our own companies. Some people are just like IT service people. Some people are writers and bloggers and there's all sorts of folks. And so the newsletter just started out of that. It's it's a way of communicating with the people who go to the meetup. Um, and I think it's got 200 250 people on it and a regular meetup might be 15 to 25 people, something around there. Yeah. So that's how it got started. And, um, it's been great. You know, the, I've been doing that now since 2012, I think. So almost 10 years, which is 
just wild to think about. And one of my favorite things, parts of living here is that there is this community. So out of Geek Beers, we started this co-working place. And, you know, every day I walk downtown from my house. There's this local coffee shop a lot of us hang out in. Go there, see some people I know, talk over coffee, walk to the co-working place, say hello to everybody here, joke around a bit, talk about whatever. And then I go into my office and work and then poke my head out around lunchtime and ask if anyone's going for lunch. And that kind of community has been really awesome. And um, and everything's kind of connected. They all kind of feed into each other. So the meetup helped produce this newsletter and the newsletter uh, and the meetup helped produce this co-working place. And um, yeah, it, it's been it's been wonderful. It's just it's just nice to have, especially during the pandemic. It was just so wonderful being able to come, and we had to be closed down for a bit of it, but um, eventually we were able to open up with you know health restrictions and to still have that community. And in fact, I actually think this the way I'm working is the best way to work ever, which is. I'm in an office, but I'm not surrounded by coworkers. Uh, there's no office politics. There's no hierarchy. I'm surrounded by peers. And so I get the energy of working around people. But there's nobody like looking over my shoulder at what I'm working on or, you know, uh, there's just none of that drama. And so I found personally working from home uh, to be not very fun. <laughs> Uh, and just getting out every single day, going for a walk every single day, getting to this office every single day, seeing people that I like to be around every single day. This, I think, is the future of work. And uh, I, I, I wish more people had experienced this when they were experimenting with work from home. Because to me, work from home is actually should just be called flexible work or remote work or whatever. And people need to expand their imaginations of what is possible there, of what that can entail. And yeah, I think this this way of working is so good. It's so fulfilling. Um, yeah, I, 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 if people can do something similar, I recommend it. And we just started this place just by splitting rent. We found a place that was reasonably affordable. I think it started at $800 a month and then we just split it four ways. And then eventually other people came along. And so, you know, we were able to spread the cost out over more people. And now we have maybe 10, 10 people that come here and work either part-time or full-time. And uh, yeah, it's been awesome. We, we keep renting out more of this floor and yeah, it's worked out well. That's really cool. I, I don't know the exact size of Vernon, but I imagine there can't be that many co-working spaces. Like maybe there's this co-working space and, and maybe one other in the downtown, something like that. Um, yeah, there's, there's two co-working spaces downtown here. Okay. Okay. And so I, I feel like um, there's something there about uh, almost being, uh, like it, it feels almost like it's scale appropriate. Like it's not like, 30 more people could m move to Vernon and then you open up another co-working space and, and now you recreate the exact same 
kind of experience that you're describing. But mm. it, it's it's something that because you had just this right number of people in a town mm -hmm. of this size to set up something like this, you could have this scale appropriate co-working space. And it's almost it's almost just not appropriate for Edmonton. Like you couldn't find the same kind of community in Edmonton. Uh, you could. I think mm. you could <clears throat> because this was this grew out of a community. It grew out of this regular event we were doing. And so, you know, if you think about a mailing list of 200 to 250 people, and then you think of a regular meetup that's attracting, like I said, 15 to 25 people every time, there's like a rotating group there of, I'm guessing, 100 people that would attend a meetup in the year. To then get 10, 15, 20 people to, um, you know, join to, to say, let's work together. Let's work around each other. Um, I think that's possible. And, uh, and to start with four, I think is even more possible. I think most folks have three or four, uh, friends or acquaintances that they're like, ah, oh, you know, I, I would just dig being around this person more often. Um, and let's just find an office space and, you know, we just had an open office space and we just brought in our desks and hooked up some internet and that was it. Um, so I think more people could do it this way, especially if you get away from this idea of co-working being a business. This is hmm. not a business for us. This is It just started out as let's work together. Let's find a place. We'll split the rent. Done. Yeah. Just a way to invest in the community you already have. Yeah. That, That's right. That yeah. Sense. To make our lives better. Hmm. So... Uh, switching gears slightly, um, mm -hmm. I've heard you talk in uh, another conversation that you had uh, around uh, kind of you know, what uh, got you started with your current work with Transistor. Uh, mm -hmm. And it, you'd mentioned that when you're in high school, you really loved talk radio. Yeah. What was some of the talk radio that you loved in high school? So I grew up in Alberta, which is a very conservative province. And uh conservatives love talk radio. <laughs> so there was, um, and, but what's the intro here's what's interesting, especially I think about, uh, older conservatives is, so my parents were quite conservative, but they listened to six thirty Chad, which was the conservative talk radio station. And they also listened to CBC. And so, which some people in Canada would say is, more left-leaning or whatever. Um, and uh, that was our like the radio in the truck or the van or whatever was always on. We're just like when I'm driving with my dad, we're listening to 630 Chat or CBC. And then I just developed that habit myself. Even as a teenager, I, even back then, I do this with podcasts still, but, you know, people will be talking about something or debating something, and I want to be there talking with them or debating that issue on the radio. And sometimes I would even turn off the radio and pretend that I was interacting with these people. Um, so the idea of hosting my own radio program, of participating in talk radio, of, of being able to discuss ideas, um, of being able to... And, and then there's like, you know, CBC did a lot of audio documentaries. CBC did all sorts of just wonderful 
Uh, there's a lot of comedy on CBC radio and I just loved it all. I, I, uh, for a long time wanted to be in radio, would have loved to have been on the radio, uh, wished I had a college radio station I could have hosted, uh, you know, and, um, and it's one of the reasons I love podcasting is as soon as I saw the internet, and this is even like even pre-internet, there were the, these things called bulletin boards. And the idea that I could write something and publish it and more than just my family would read it just blew my mind. It's like I the idea of having my own newspaper. I also published my own newspaper for the family. Um, you know, I, I would print out a daily thing and post it on our, our cork board. I just loved the idea of publishing, of broadcasting. and. Uh, and so, yeah, the, as soon as, you know, blogging came around and podcasting, it was just like, wow, like for a microphone is a hundred bucks and uh, podcast hosting is, you know, 19 bucks and that's all you really need and a computer. But, you know, I already had one of those and it's just like, I could plug my microphone into my computer and record some audio or interview somebody and publish it. And then people might listen, like maybe 50 people would listen. That was amazing to me and is still amazing to me and still kind of fires me up about the internet in general. It's it's the great leveler. You know, before, my friends and I used to dream about being much music VJs, like uh, video disc jockeys, you know? Yep, yep. But we knew the process. It was like thousands of people applied for those jobs and, you know, your your chance of making it through and actually getting on the air was so small. And I had people, uh, a guy at my church bought a radio station and I, I just would ask him all sorts of questions like, how does this work? How do I get on the radio? How do? And he was just like, it's it's incredibly hard. It's there's only a few host spots and it's very competitive. So. And it's the same with writing for the newspaper or anything. It's like all of these things were limited because there's only so many spots. But in with the internet, uh, it made it possible for a kid in Stony Plain to write something, click publish, and for the world to be able to see it. And that was and is incredible to me still to this day. And for very little cost. That's the other thing. It's just like, a radio station, even even if you wanted to get into ham radio, it was like thousands of dollars. Uh, but to and if you wanted to print out your newsletter and distribute it, you know that was hundreds or thousands of dollars. Uh, so yeah, the, the and I also used to do a film, so I was really into videography. And we did a film festival every year where we would like a bunch of us would make films and then show them at the local theater. And then we would we would distribute them on DVD. But it was so expensive to do that. The duplication costs for DVDs were uh, it was pricey. Um, so anyway, all of this to say that w when all of this became possible on the Internet, podcasting and the ability to have some talk radio that you participate in. You know, that's why I like this show here. I love this. I just have always wanted to do this since I was a kid. And so every time I get a chance to do it, it's it's just so exciting. It's like 
I can't believe we get to do this. I can't believe that I don't have to try to dethrone Howard Stern in order to get on the radio. I can just start a podcast or be in, uh, invited onto someone else's podcast. It's incredible to me that this is a thing that we get to be, we get to be alive right now. We're very we're very lucky. Um, yes. I I I wonder the uh films that you made is there any chance you remember uh one of the plot lines of oh, the films you distributed? They were so silly. They were so silly and these are things I don't want people to find. Um we had one called uh, Superhero High School, which is like, um, <laughs> it was like uh, the idea was there's a bunch of superheroes in a high school. They were like skits. They were kind of like SNL style mm. skits, a lot of them. Um, I made quite a few snowboard videos and skateboard videos. Uh, yeah, so lots of like silly, silly skits, early, early uh, video editing um like i would i had a uh originally i had a vhs uh camcorder that was on my shoulder and then i had to buy a capture card for my computer that was incredibly expensive for the time i think it was over a thousand dollars and then you would put the rca cables into the back of your computer you would hit record on your computer play on the camera and then it would play into convert it to digital it would crash all the time and you'd have to restart the process. Um, but yeah, I loved that stuff. Mm. Um, yeah. I did talk shows with my friends, uh, like kind of much music style. Um, yeah, so many things. I, 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 uh, I loved that stuff, just being able to create, create that stuff. We, we did radio too. My friend had a, had a, a reel to reel recorder and we would pretend we were on the radio and we would play our favorite you know, Beastie Boys tracks and then talk in between. And uh, yeah, lots of, lots of experimenting and exploring and um, kind of like, uh, you know, when you're really young, you play house and you play, you know, whatever you, you, you enact things, you know, in a playful way. And as a teenager, I was doing that too. I was like uh, pretending I was play radio host, play TV host, play SNL uh, uh, character. You know, I, I was just playing out all these things. Well, it was it was clearly good practice. Um, you know, I, I can see you know, it came through. So, yeah, I, 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 have a, um, I have a question about another blog post you wrote. Uh, mm -hmm. I think this one is uh, maybe a couple years old. It's good businesses have margin. Mm -hmm. So. You make this point in it, which I love, where you say that for budding entrepreneurs, you know, they should be looking for business models that have good margins with mm -hmm. minimal complexity uh, mm -hmm. and that they should choose work that gives them a lot of breathing room. Um, mm -hmm. So obviously, you've been really smart to uh, build a SaaS business with great margins. Um, but I'd love to know if there's any way that you use this mental model of giving yourself margins uh, day to day. Like, do you yeah. think do you think about this building margins in as you take specific decisions with Transistor or anything else that you work on? Oh yeah, yeah. At, at Transistor, we have this set of values and kind of uh, guardrails that we set up. It's public. It's in a GitHub repo that 
kind of got early on for John and I, my partner kind of guided everything, even when we weren't making money. So the, the, because we, we, we came to Transistor, we were both in our late thirties. I think I was 38 and John was just a bit younger than me, 37. And, you know, we tried other businesses on our own. We'd worked for quite a few startups by that point. And we knew what we didn't want. <laughs> we, we, we wanted a better life. We wanted to not just create a business that would just be like more time in the office and more stress and more pressure. We wanted to create something that once we got it off the ground, we knew that, you know, getting a plane off the ground takes a lot of, you know, energy and fuel. But once it's in the air, you know, you once you're airborne, you want to feel like, okay, now we're flying, right? We didn't want to be constantly feeling like we were taking off. And we have just these principles that we live by, which is, you know, is this, is this going to uh, add more weight and complexity to our lives, to our business, to the work we do? If we make this decision in six months, are we still going to be excited about working on Transistor? So for an example, at one point we were thinking about getting into the podcast ads business. Ads are a huge part of podcasting. There's, you know, there could be a lot of potential there. But the more we investigated it, the more we just realized this is just going to add so much weight, drama, complexity, uh, anguish <laughs> to our lives. And we don't want that. And it, it seems like... And it, you you realize this especially if you've tried other things or you've worked for a, a boss who was always stressed and was then downloading his stress onto you. It's like every day, and we all know people like this, and I think we've all been there, where you go to work and your workplace is a place of stress. Why? Because the boss goes in and he gets an email from his boss, which stresses him out, and then your boss then goes out into you know, the open workspace and then downloads all of his stress onto you about because, you know, he just got all that pressure. So it's like a pressure machine. The pressure comes from up top and then it goes down to this level of management and then this level. And then all the employees are on the bottom just feeling it all. And uh, it's just an awful way to live. I, we didn't want that. We wanted a business that was going to give us freedom, that was going to give us margin. Margin... Having margin, it's just like such a calming way to live. It's the difference between going to the mechanic and him saying, it's going to cost $2,000 to repair your car. If you have margin, a $2,000 car repair is not stressful. But... I could tell you, I've had lots of moments in my life where a $2,000 car repair was extremely stressful. That's margin. Margin is having some reserves in the bank. It's having a buffer. It's having some space. And it's not always possible. And I th we feel incredibly fortunate 
that we've been able to build a business that's given us margin. It might not last forever, but it is such a great way to live, to have space and buffer and margin to live. And even when something bad might happen, so at the beginning of the pandemic, when people were freaking out and there's, you know, a lot of contracts got paused temporarily, uh, you know, eventually things would go up and to the right. But those first like four to six weeks, everyone was freaking out. People were losing their jobs. Contracts were getting paused. John and I were like, we got to prepare ourselves here. We could lose up to 50%. That's probably worst case scenario. We would lose 50% of revenue. And we were just ready for that. But our our feeling was, well, we could lose 50% and we'd still be okay. That's margin. It's having room for, you know, uh, anything that might come your way. Uh, and so many businesses are built on this idea of, I'm just going to crank this wheel, crank this wheel, crank this wheel. The, the harder I crank it, the more that comes out of the machine. If I stop cranking it, everything will come to a, a standstill. That's most small businesses. And it's not a healthy way to live long-term. Um, so instead of <laughs> feeling like every day I'm getting up and I'm just cranking that wheel and it's just like grinding down all my joints and it's tiresome, but I know I've got to keep doing it because there's no margin. This, this wheel is not going to keep going if I let go. Um, it's nice to instead have this metaphor of like maybe a plane taking off or harnessing the power of a wave if you're surfing, like for there to be some sort of underlying momentum, hopefully in the market and the character of the product itself that gives you that uplift so that you don't have to be doing all the work and so that there is a reasonable amount of profit a reasonable amount of space for your time, a reasonable amount of space for your emotional health and everything else. And um, yeah, I can send you the link after. It, it, it's on our, our, we have this GitHub of uh, our our values and it's, it's just all there. It's like, uh, we value openness, honesty, and vulnerability. Our emotional and physical well-being is our number one priority. It's worth investing time and money to take care of ourselves. Simplicity over complexity, slow and mindful instead of move fast and break stuff. These are the principles we based our lives on. And um, it the fruit of those decisions is that... Um, we truly do have a good life for us and our employees. It 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 is it is, you know, John and I wake up every day and go, this is the best job we've ever had. And our employees have told us many times, this is the best job we've ever had. Um, and so yeah, the I think having those early on and kind of shaping them as we've gone along has been really helpful for us. And we just got lucky in that we found a business and a business model and an opportunity that kind of delivered on all of those things for us. That's awesome. I would I would love to uh, read those values if uh, if you can. Yeah, that's cool. So I heard you say in a podcast uh, that you were really worried about uh, crypto cult dynamics 
and mm. uh, this kind of almost extreme religiosity that you see in particular crypto circles. So yeah. it seems feels a bit topical with the whole FTX debacle. Uh, yeah. Are you still worried about those kind of cult dynamics? Um, and I think I'm worried. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. No. Go. No. No. Go, go ahead. I'm I'm worried about cult dynamics in every part of modern culture. I think there's a cult of celebrity that is um, quite toxic. I think in tech, there's a cult around certain leaders that I think is entirely unhealthy. And um, yeah, I it, that stuff does worry me, uh, partly because we are, are just all susceptible to it. I'm susceptible to it. I've I've been fortunate enough to meet some of the people, some of my idols. And, uh, you know, there's that saying, don't meet your heroes. <laughs> and, you know, some of these people are fine. Some of them are just, but they either disappoint you or you just realize they're just human beings. We're all susceptible to lapses of judgment. We're all susceptible to bad decision-making, to bad thinking. And what cults around personalities especially do is they they diminish kind of just rational thinking. So if Sam Bankman-Fried is speaking and it's just like, wow, like he's a billionaire and he's Harvard educated and he just seems to have it all. And, and, and man, this crypto thing doesn't make rational sense to me, but if he's in favor of it, then it must be okay. And we do this all the time. This is a very human thing to do, to say, um, to follow people and go, uh, you know, almost shut off our rational, critical brains. And um, it, it also leads to some very powerful, wealthy people being insulated from any real criticism. They just live in this, this bubble where they're constantly getting, they're getting so many messages. <laughs> and as someone who experiences this myself, I, I, on a much lower scale, you know, it, it's actually one of the difficult things about having any sort of audience is, uh, for example, some people think I, I've been accused of being overly pessimistic about certain things. And there's part of me that wants to evaluate that claim. Maybe I am overly negative and maybe the things that I tweet and talk about um, have an undesirable effect on people's mental health and all these kinds of things. But the, the challenge is that I'm getting messages from people that are saying, Justin, that blog post you wrote changed my life. It was so amazing. It was great. Keep doing what you're doing. You know, I can get 20 of those messages and then I'll get, you know, a handful of messages going, you're clearly an indoctrinated fool, you know, and and just elevate that scale to somebody at Elon Musk's scale or um, Sam Bankman Fried's scale or whoever. It's just you can hear whatever you want to hear. And we've seen this over and over again throughout history. <laughs> okay, look at Napoleon. You, you eventually start to believe your own bullshit and think you can accomplish anything, right? 
Napoleon thought he was an undefeatable uh, military strategist. And people around him were telling him he's undefeatable and nobody wants to challenge him. And he ends up, this is how almost all uh, cults of personality end up. They end up <laughs> uh, cratering, right? You can't sustain it forever. And as soon as you start to believe your own bullshit or the bullshit that people tell you or whatever, you're in trouble. I have this like, this desire and underlying belief that human knowledge and understanding and um, uh, human, human knowledge is ascendant, meaning with hopefully with every year and every decade and every hundred years, we are gradually climbing uh, this kind of ascendant scale of knowing more. Anything that can be known, uh, we can know. It's possible. It's possible to find the answers to things. It's possible for us to know if crypto is a good idea or a bad idea. And um, it's also possible for us to critique ideas when they're still in their formative stages. And a cult of personality really distorts that. So artificial intelligence has all sorts of potential downsides, ethically, ethically, mostly. <laughs> and um, it's okay for us to be questioning, questioning that and going, hold up, uh, let's, just, let's just tone down the rhetoric for a second. The utopian rhetoric, like everything's going to be great. This is going to, crypto's going to save mankind. It's going to replace the central bank. You know, whatever the topic is, crypto, AI, electric cars, whatever. Let's just, let's just, okay. Is this a good idea? And um, we're, we're so, it, it, it's so easy to influence human beings. And myself included, we're all susceptible to um, kind of uh, turning off our rational brains because we're following somebody that inspires us or that we like or whatever. And I think cults of personality in politics, in tech, in business, in celebrity are generally a bad thing and need to be tempered. And we should all be tempering that there should be way more peer. Um, this is one of the great things about science is if Neil deGrasse Tyson makes a claim, uh, scientifically, it doesn't matter that he has a million followers on Twitter or whatever. That shouldn't matter. All that matters is the evidence he's provided, whether it's reproducible by other scientists and his his uh, social standing should have no impact on the science. Science is the process of saying, okay, well, let's do the experiments. Let's see what the results are. And let's see if other people can reproduce this finding. And um, I, I think we need more of that kind of thinking in life, in politics, in business, in society. It's like, okay, let's Let's have an approach where we're not influenced by this person just because they have a billion dollars in the bank or just because they have 100 million followers on TikTok 
those signals actually, when it comes to, you know, uh, what is true and what is false, those signals are not, those are not good signals for determining what is true and what is false. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I, I'm still really worried about it. I, mm. I think it's, I think um, it's dangerous. And the, the only way we can really fight it is, it's so tricky because um, I haven't I haven't completed my thinking on this. I, I I'm actually open to other people's thinking on this because there 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 used to be this idea that we we must criticize public figures because public figures influence have so much influence that they are open to uh, criticism that you would you might not apply to one of your peers and the challenge now is that <laughs> to a certain extent we all have a certain amount of influence now and so figuring out the scale of critique and all that stuff is tricky but uh yeah so i i, I don't have I, I i don't know if i have a a ton of uh, of solutions on how we solve that particular this particular problem in society, except for, <laughs> I love how in science, it doesn't matter if you're a celebrity. Um, it, all that matters is the claims you're making, the evidence you provide, and whether other people can reproduce those findings. And you could be the most unknown group of scientists in the world, but as long as you are you know, doing good research, providing good evidence, and it's reproducible by other people, then that's what you know, becomes accepted uh, knowledge. Uh, so if we could figure out ways to translate that into other parts of society, I'm all for it. It actually feels like this uh, ties in with what you were saying earlier around broadcasting and how you know it's such a joy that we all have this opportunity to broadcast now and that it gives everyone this kind of uh, leverage. And perhaps if you can uh, combine that leverage to communicate ideas with a kind of cultural insistence on letting the best idea win via mm -hmm. some kind of scientific process like this. It gives us some amazing tools to improve our knowledge of the world. Yeah, it, it's tr the, the tricky part is that the internet is a great magnifier, but it is also a, it also magnifies the distortion. And that's the tension is that, um, uh, on one hand, you know, the internet has been responsible for changing my thinking or helping to change my thinking on so many topics, challenging my thinking. And over time, with enough nudges, I think it's one reason I'm kind of still insistent on discussing ideas in public because just i've i've been for sure my mind has been changed not overnight not just with one blog post but enough reading and podcasts and thinking can change your mind now <laughs> there's it can change your mind in the right direction and the wrong direction right it can that's the that's the tricky part is that it's the internet is also a distortion machine and now there's so much content if you go down you know, if you choose the wrong rabbit hole, you can, uh, the algorithm can really influence our thinking in ways that we don't think it is, but it is. 
and so there's a tension here that is also kind of unresolved. I think on the whole, the internet is probably good. It's still quite young. But we need more social technology, societal technology to, uh, for, for us as humans to figure out how do we evaluate information? How do we participate in the marketplace of ideas? And then how do those, by what metric do we decide, you know, if ideas are winning or losing? Um, and yeah, it, it's, it's, uh, it's, there's still a tension there that's kind of unresolved. I, I don't know how we resolve it. At least though, we should, we should acknowledge the good and the bad. So yeah, the internet is allowing you and I to talk right now, which is incredible. We would have never had this opportunity to connect in this way um, even 20 years ago. But the internet is also a, an awful magnifier and distortion and amplifier of um, terrible things. And, and uh, we can kind of live in that tension right now of going, okay, there's, there's still something we need to resolve here, which is how as a society can we make sure that, you know, that we are still kind of gradually in an upward motion, gaining more true knowledge, understanding more things that are true. And um, I do believe that things are knowable, that anything that is, anything that can be known, it's possible that we could know it. Um, and so I, I don't like... <laughs> I don't like when people go, well, who knows? Why even bother trying? It's like, well, no, we, of course it can be known. We just haven't figured out how to know it yet. Mm -hmm. And if it's worth knowing, we should, we should pursue it. Uh, so I'm not in, in that way. I'm optimistic. I, I, I want to, I want to pursue knowledge and the things that can be known. Um, and I want society to do that as well. Yeah. I, I don't know if that <laughs> no that that I, that makes a ton of sense and uh, I actually think you know we're, we're coming up on time and I think that's a good place to wrap up so thank you so much wow that went by it felt like I only answered two questions <laughs> oh no we got through a few we got through a few um we, we touched on a few topics so uh no I, I thought it was a really great conversation um I learned a lot so thank you yeah well this was fun like I said it went by fast so anytime you want to chat again just let me know yeah, let's do it.